So, beginning in the mid-1970s, sightings of a mysterious unknown hominid in Australia, sometimes called the Yowie, really began to take off. Nowadays, the Yowie research community, such as it is, really quite resembles, to my mind, a similar culture in the US regarding Bigfoot. Having said that, it's taken some unusual steps between then and now, and there are a lot of interesting wrinkles to this story that we're going to focus on. I've covered the Yowie at least once before, but this time I have a lot more to say about it. This is Wide Atlantic Weird. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this unidentified flying object. Of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body. You're listening to White Atlantic Weird, a podcast about why people believe weird things. I'm Kian, and here at the Cabin in the Woods, located somewhere in West Cork, on each episode I tackle stories of the strange. This time it's cryptozoology time once again. We haven't done any cryptids for quite some time, and this is an Australian based one, but we have been to Australia reasonably recently with our picnic at Hanging Rock episode. Maybe it's the weather, it's been storming and raining non-stop for the last three days here at the cabin. Uh, maybe that's what has me thinking of sunnier climes, who knows. But uh, a couple of things to say before we get to the main bit of the episode. Uh, firstly, uh, you can always contact me uh, on Twitter where we are at Strange Ireland or Instagram where we are Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. And you can also support the show by uh, buying us a coffee, which is from Buy Me A Coffee. Please do check that out. Special thanks to just a few people who've done that recently. So thanks to Natasha, thanks to James, thanks to Liam, thanks to Kurt, uh, thanks to Jen, all of whom have done that very recently. So thank you very much to you all. If you don't have money, I understand, these are hard times, you can also help the show out by writing reviews, which I'll read out if I spot them. Let me know if I, if you've left one somewhere and I haven't seen it, uh, send me a message and I'll be happy to read it out. You can also help us out by uh, sharing the show with one other person who you think might like it. My beer for this episode is called Curious Society Pilsner. I don't drink Pilsners very often, but this this is nice. It's from Larkin Brewing in Wicklow. And it has a wonderful, wonderful image on the can, which kind of caught my eye. It's a mostly white can with a sort of cartoony conglomeration of woodland critters who are hanging out together. Uh, hence, I suppose, the name Curious Society. Uh, unknown to me, when I picked this up, it is, in fact, a gluten-free beer. Not the first time this has ever happened to me, where I've picked one up by accident. The taste does take a little bit of getting used to, but I'm sure uh, by, um, by the time I'm down to the end of the can, I won't mind either way. Quick thank you to listener David, listening from Washington, D.C., exotic Washington, D.C. I'm not being sarcastic. It, that would be tremendously exotic to me as a, an Americanophile and as someone who can't really go very far from the cabin in the woods right now. Uh, so David has a cool question. He says that he enjoyed the Margaret Murray episode. That's one of my one of the ones I'm most proud of. And he was looking for the follow-up Gerald Gardner episode. I did say at the end of that show that I would do a, a Gerald Gardner episode. That's the natural uh, kind of conclusion. I never got around to it, partly because I'm a bit fussy about like when I make episodes. 
And I would love to do an episode about Gerald Gardner, and I will someday. Um, So Margaret Murray, of course, comes up with the concept of the witch cult hypothesis, the idea that the witch trials, historical witch trials, were like persecution of an actual pagan religion and then Gerald Gardner in the 1950s kind of takes the next logical step and um, like recreates this himself uh, believing that or at least saying that it was actually a follow-on from a, a continuation of this of this religion you know going all the way back to the Neolithic and basically kind of creating what we now know as Wicca, a tremendously important guy in the history of modern New Age thought and modern religions I absolutely do want to talk about him, and I could always, you know, do a quick Wikipedia chat through his life, but I, I kind of, I try to hold myself to a higher level than that, and I want to do, I want to get some good reading. So the difference was with Margaret Murray, I had access to her original books, and I had access to some good criticism and analysis of her ideas. I don't for Gerald Gardner. I don't want to do this episode until I've read his work so I want to read High Magic's Aid, I want to read Witchcraft Today and I want to read Triumph of the Moon by Ronald Hutton which as far as I know is, is probably the most important sort of analysis of Wicca and, and kind of modern neo-pagan stuff. I know it's a little old now but it, it seems to be the most important bit of kind of criticism about that whole movement and I don't feel right talking about it until I've read all that stuff and I've had a little little difficulty getting hold of some of these books either because they're expensive or because I, I've experienced some problems ordering stuff from the UK recently. I don't know if it's COVID. I don't know if it's Brexit. But um, stuff that is not available digitally at the moment is um, a little bit slow for me. And I always prefer to pick up books in bookshops rather than ordering online. But obviously, I don't have that luxury at the moment. So someday when I have all that material and I've read it and I have my take on it, I'll be thrilled to talk about Gerald Gardner, uh, a really important character. He might... He might poke his head into some other episode that I do in the future. You never know. Right, let's talk about Yowies. So this episode is mostly me talking about, it's it's one book, it's called The Yowie in Search of Australia's Bigfoot by Tony Healy and Paul Cropper. As always with White Atlantic Weird, I try to be critical but not cynical about these topics and that might be, that maxim might be a little stressed in this episode. You might find it a little more negative than usual, and not because I don't like these fellows. Actually, I think they seem pretty great. This is a great book and I absolutely recommend it. It's insanely thorough and I, I can't imagine anyone else has done a better job of chronicling the Yowie. The episode is entirely about this book. Maybe that's unfair. Maybe you'll feel upon listening like I'm kind of characterizing the whole phenomena or the whole movement based on this one book. It's just because it really is that thorough. And, and what I'm doing really is is taking this book on its own merits and just calling it, you know, going through it for what it is, taking it for what it is, and because it is just such a really, really good layout of the whole Yowie phenomena and its its kind of historical place at the moment in time when it was published, which is 2006, and I have some thoughts about that particular time as well. So if I'm missing out any, if there are really good books I should be reading or any more recent um, articles about the Yowie or about Australian mystery creatures, by all means send them in to me. I'd love to hear them. As I record this, the online cryptozoology world has been waiting for a few days with uh, some with bated breath and others with a bit more cynicism. There was a story going around that a group in Tasmania had uh, photographs, I think, of what they believed to have to be a relic Tasmanian tiger. It has now come out that it is not any such thing. It's some other sort of 
smaller, less interesting or less rare marsupial. But yeah, Australian connection, thought I might get that in there. Anyway, that's all the intro I have for this episode. Let's get on with the Yowie. As far back as I can remember, the yarn of the hairy man was told in the Blue Mountain district of New South Wales. It scared children coming home by bush tracks from school, and boys out late after lost cows, and even grown bushmen, when going along a lonely track after sunset, would hold their backs hollow and whistle a tune when they suddenly heard a thud, thud of a kangaroo leaping off through the scrub. Other districts also had spooks and bogies, the escaped tiger, the ghost of the convict who had been done to death and buried in his irons, ghosts of men who had hanged themselves, the ghost of the hawker's wife whose husband had murdered her with a tomahawk in the lonely camp by the track. All sorts and conditions of the ghosts, none of them cheerful, most of them grimly original and characteristic of the weird, melancholy and aggressively lonely Australian bush. But the hairy man was permanent and his country spread from the eastern slopes of the Great Dividing Range right out to the ends of the western spurs. He had been heard of and seen and described so often and by so many reliable liars that most people agreed there must be something to it. The most popular and enduring theory was that he was a gorilla or an orangutan which had escaped from a menagerie long ago. He was also said to be a new kind of kangaroo, or the last of a species of Australian animals which hadn't been discovered yet. Anyway, in some places he was regarded as a danger to children coming home from school, as were wild bullocks, snakes and the occasional bushman in the DTs. So now and then, when the yarn had a revival, search parties were organised and went out with guns to find the hairy man, and to settle him and the question one way or the other. But they never found him. That is the beginning of a short story from 1907. The story is called The Hairy Man. It was written by Henry Lawson uh, from a collection called Triangles of Life and Other Stories. And I think it gives us something of a flavour of the legend of what has come to be known as the Yowie and how prevalent it may have been even back in those far off days. So this is not my first Yowie episode. Way back at the beginning of the show when things were quite different and the format was very different. I did a, a short episode about the Yowie phenomena. Go back and take a listen if you're interested. This one is intended to supersede that one because I'm going to go into, I think, a lot more detail about one of the primary texts that I used for that episode, which is a book called The Yowie in Search of Australia's Bigfoot. It's written by two fellows, Tony Healy and Paul Cropper. I recently reread this book and I had some thoughts and I wanted to go into the story of the Yowie once again, especially being as we've dealt with Australian strangeness quite recently with our Picnic at Hanging Rock episode, which of course you should listen to if you haven't already. So briefly, I do remember that when I made that first Yowie episode, my ideas going into it were that this was a sort of a 20th century phenomena, that 
you know, after Bigfoot became a big thing in America in the 1950s and uh, the abominable snowman in the 20s, that this kind of meme of, you know, anomalous primates was in the air and that, you know, people came up with a version of this from Australia and that they then back projected the story and dug up, you know, whatever Aboriginal legends they could find that seemed to fit with this new creation. That's what I was expecting. And if you go back and listen to that episode, you can you can see that having done more research, I was then surprised to find out that there was a pretty a pretty wide range of sources that are much earlier than the 20th century, much earlier than the sort of canonical first Bigfoot cases of the 20s and, and, and the 50s, with the, especially with the Wallace Footprints case, which is, for me at least, is kind of ground zero for Bigfoot. I was surprised that there was a fairly good range of Aboriginal folklore stories that seemed to fit with the idea of the Yowie, and there was also a lot of newspaper accounts of what they used to call the, the Australian gorilla from the 19th century and uh, kind of early 20th. And that short story, The Hairy Man, seems to fit in kind of at that time zone and gives us the impression that the like the idea of there being a hairy man in the bush was widespread, even whether it was a joke or whether it was some kind of an urban legend or a, a boogeyman, something you would tell the kids about to scare them and to keep them from going into the bush. The idea absolutely did exist before it was kind of mass popularized with what we would now recognize as kind of contemporary post-1950s cryptozoology culture. So I'm going to go even further into those details. I'm really just focusing on this one book because it is so thorough and it's it's lay, everything is laid out kind of in as reasonable a way as I would ever hope. I, I can't imagine that anybody has ever written a more thorough book about this reasonably niche phenomena. Um, and apart from that, I don't know much about these authors. I have no idea uh, what they're like outside of this book. Uh, they seem really reasonable, and actually I get the feeling that I'd really like them. I like the way they write. It, it's it's an interesting... It, it really suits me in terms of how thorough and almost encyclopedia-like they are. The material by necessity is a bit repetitive a lot of the stories are repetitive but um it just it really feels to me like they're not looking to blow this out of proportion they're not looking to make it into more than it really is and they are you know telling you their thoughts as they occur to them and they frequently point out when something doesn't match with their own thoughts and their own hopes for this phenomena and as such this book strikes me as maybe a, a metaphor for the sort of cryptozoological world at large, because we're going to be talking about how the authors go from, you know, the standard cryptozoological thing of maybe this is a mysterious unknown animal, and then, you know, having collected the insane amount of information that they have, and I think being honest with themselves, they come to a conclusion that sees them sliding gradually and inevitably, and maybe with some with some regret into more supernatural explanations but we'll get to that in time so uh, so this book is from 2006 which is for me my personal kind of difference between the pre-internet era and the post not literally but like the era at which the internet became ubiquitous and you know was in your pocket all the time and you would look up everything and check everything and cross-reference everything being maybe a little bit before this kind of between the year 2000 and maybe 2004 
for me personally because that's when I think we had access to broadband frequently and at, at university and stuff like that so I do like the idea when investigating this stuff to go back to stuff written before the inform the internet age it generally means you are getting uh, not always but it means you're getting a, a better quality of material and you're, you're trying to I'm trying always trying to get away from this sort of culture of websites just kind of quoting one another and parroting one another and trying to get beyond that to the original news reports and the original uh, writings of the researchers whenever I can and whenever that is appropriate so this book is is, is coming out at a good time because um I do feel a lot of stuff was spoiled somewhat by the internet. I know it it is tremendously useful for collecting extra information, but it's not very good at sorting wheat from chaff. And I think anyone who studies anomalous phenomena will will probably know the feeling of being swamped by material and having an embarrassment of riches and being being having a difficulty in in, in showing what's really useful and what's really not. So I'm going to read what the back of the book says about the authors. Uh, Paul Cropper, it says, became fascinated by the Yowie mystery in 1976 when he uncovered several long-forgotten eyewitness reports in colonial-era newspapers. So yeah, a little bit like myself. Uh, he then began visiting the Blue Mountains to the west of his home in Sydney, searching for proof of the creature's existence. Uh, and then Canberra-based Tony Healy, who has already become, who had already become intrigued by the Bigfoot or Sasquatch phenomena while working in Canada in 1969, also became involved in Yowie research in the mid-1970s. So, as far as I know, neither of these gentlemen had an encounter of their own, which is interesting. It, uh, it, you could say a similar thing about the, the, the four horsemen of Sasquatchery, the four big main 20th century Bigfoot researchers, as far as I recall offhand, none of whom ever had their own encounter. And it seems like they're forever uh, chasing after these creatures and turning up just just after the fact. And at one point in the in this book, they kind of sadly uh, describe their research as you know meeting people who've just had a really exciting encounter, being there slightly too late, and uh, taking these slightly sad photographs of people you know standing next to a bush with nothing else there and holding their hands up and saying, "Oh, I, I saw it. It was this high." <laughs> I do I do like these guys from this book. I really hope that, you know, they're not crazy conspiracy theorists who are in, into horrible things outside of this book. But uh, I'm only going to go on what is in this book. So they, they mentioned straight off the bat that they're not trained scientists. But as far as I can tell, this is the best kind of amateur research you can expect from amateur researchers on just about any topic. They're incredibly, they seem really smart. They're incredibly thorough. They're open-minded amateurs doing their absolute best. You, you can't expect much more than this from people who are not scientifically trained. The book is enormous. Uh, it is full of, it, it is like thoughtfully organized by, by age or by date. And then there's a massive appendix at the end of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of encounters all in chronological order and um, they organize things by what time were the creatures seen at what time of year uh, what were the surroundings what was the condition of the witness what was the weather so they're being as thorough as you could possibly hope for with uh, an investigation like this one thing i did find disappointing is that even though i said there's this amazing appendix of chronological uh, sightings of the yaoi it's not organized by when the sightings were actually reported and this is a real stickler for me because I tend to look at this from a sociological point of view so 
I'm de I'm very very interested in which cases you know were reported and written down and recorded before the Yowie, for example, became big news, which for all intents and purposes is about 1975. We'll talk about why that is later, but that's when the Yowie goes from you know zero to hero. That's when it becomes a thing in the Australian media and then around the world eventually. So it's it's disappointing to me that these researchers have, you know, I see, oh, I'm really impressed here. Look how many sightings there were back in the 1920s, 30s and 40s. And then I find out that most of them weren't actually recorded until the 80s or 90s. You know, long after the, the template has been set, the idea has been defined. And, uh, you know, post-1975, the Yowie becomes a particular thing, you know, which has to be said is very informed by American Bigfoot culture and and other cultures of sort of cryptozoology from around the world so that's that's tough for me i i with this kind of stuff i tend to i tend to dismiss reports that are from decades earlier and i know that's really tough because there are many reasons there are many legitimate reasons why somebody might not report a, a, you know a sighting of something that might get them tired as a as a lunatic or as as unreliable or might have problems for their family or for their job and i really do get that but i have to be a hard ass when it comes to this stuff because sociologically once that phenomena is set once everybody knows what the yowie is and what it's supposed to look like then the cases that come afterwards are far less valuable to me than the ones that came beforehand now, one interesting thing that the authors do in this book is they, they spread the Yowie out into what they call four timelines or four ages. So that's kind of like early Aboriginal stuff. And then the, the, what they call the colonial period, um, which is like late 1700s up until about 1901. They have a, what they call a quiet early modern period, which is from 1901 until 1975. And then you've got what they call the modern period, which is 1975 plus. And I think... Whether or not we agree that this is a real phenomena, those differences are are legitimate, and I, I have thoughts about about why. So basically what they're saying is the Yowie exists in different versions or different formats. So it shows up not under the name Yowie, but under various other names in Aboriginal folklore. So lots of Aboriginal groups have stories about humanoid sounding creatures or or you know like the hairy man or the wild man or something like that they don't they often describe it as being a person or a tribe but one that's kind of different to the ones that they know and i mean that makes sense given that there's no way they would use the language of apes to describe them going going back before european contact because there weren't any apes in australia so there's no reason they would use that kind of terminology to describe it later on settlers describe these stories as, as being what they call an Australian gorilla. The colonial period uh, from the 1700s until the uh, the beginning of 1900 is mostly newspaper stories. And and this is important to me because there is, they're, they're really interesting and they're fascinating. And, and there's this, there's a lot of stories about settlers coming across, you know, Australian gorillas is what they tend to call them. Or sometimes they call them yahoos because of the language of uh, Gulliver's Travels, of course, and um, uh, they, the word Yowie itself doesn't come until much later, and is kind of, uh, the origins of it are a bit murky, but we'll we'll get to that. As I said on my previous Yowie episode, I was impressed with the amount of genuine newspaper stories from this time talking about encounters with Bigfoot or Yowie-like creatures. However, 
there's there are a number of known fakes uh, associated with this period and the authors of the book you know freely admit this what i don't think they're taking into account is the sociological circumstances in which those articles were written because unfortunately we know that there was absolutely a culture of newspaper hoaxes in the 19th century and early 20th and there are some very famous ones like the 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 moon hoax from the uh, i think it was the 1830s in new york there are a lot of bigfoot related ones as well but basically oh and of course the airship the the airship hoax from various american newspapers kind of in the 1890s and you know up to the first world war and slightly afterwards some of those were genuine sightings but a lot of it was nonsense that was made up and i think if you don't understand the culture of the documents that you're reading and you're taking them at face value you're going to miss out on you're going to miss out on the real context in which they were written and there was a kind of an expectation at this time that like crazy kooky stories would show up in newspapers occasionally and I suppose it's a little bit like somebody now looking back at, you know, old issues of the Weekly World News and reading about Bat Boy and shit like that and, and just taking that at face value and saying, well, it was in a newspaper and it doesn't say that it's fake. You know, I think people back then understood the context in which these sort of hoaxes and jokes were, were written. You know, a little bit like how even big newspapers and big serious newspapers today will still run, you know, a joke on April Fool's Day or something like that. So I think there's a context there that's missing and and someone who was really bad for this unfortunately was was the the great charles fort who you know from whence we get the term forty and but his whole thing was looking up old newspapers for examples of weird stuff and just swallowing whole every single thing that was written and taking it as gospel and i think if you don't understand the society the world in which these things were written the 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 culture of tall tales that existed in in frontier countries like the the west of america and and australia where these like bigfoot stories were coming from i think you're missing out on a big part of the story does that mean that every single one of these has to be discounted as a fake immediately no it doesn't and to be honest we're never going to know about most of them but you know understanding the way in which the world in which they were written is so important there's then this what the guys call this early modern period when yaoi sightings become quiet and they point out various realistic enough reasons for this like australia you know massively urbanizes at the beginning of the 20th century people are living in cities more and when people are out in the countryside even if they're farmers they're usually on a a tractor or a car instead of a horse or hiking so people spend less time in the bush we'd expect there to be fewer encounters with mystery creatures and that that's fine that all sounds uh, sensible again it's ignoring any sociological explanations for the appearance or lack of yaois i mean you know there there was no cultural reason for them to exist there hadn't been you know culture changes and the this tradition of so the aboriginal stories were becoming less known because of the massive wholesale destruction of their lifestyle also that that culture of the kind of newspaper hoaxes was no longer a thing and it just seems to me that you know there was nothing for the yaoi idea to cling on to nothing had happened in culture that was to give it shape until 1975 a guy called rex gilroy comes on the scene and he's fascinated by these old stories and he believes that he's had a sighting himself and he starts writing articles for local papers and the whole thing gets a new breath of life and i think that this period what the guys call the modern period 1975 until today is entirely influenced by american bigfoot culture and there's just 
there's just no way of getting around that. Not to say that, again, that doesn't mean that we can dismiss all this stuff out of hand, and there's an unbelievable amount of really, really interesting, exciting, compelling stories from this period, which we will get to, and, and there's some there's some great stuff there. And like I said, this is this is really good work done by amateurs, not scientists, in collecting data. However, the the, the sociological element just is really lacking here for me. Anyway, let's talk about the name. So there's a lot of interesting back and forth about where the term Yaoi came from. I think there's a... I, I, I personally would have an interest in finding out that whether or not this name definitely predates 1975 and Rex Gilroy's uh, perpetuation of, of the name. Older older cases from, from the 1800s almost always call them a Yahoo, which I think we can probably take as coming from, well, um, we'll read about this, but probably coming from from Gulliver's Travels. Like I said, they call them um, uh, Australian gorillas and, and stuff like that, because the the Bigfoot was not yet famous, and the Abominable Snowman was not yet famous, and, and it, I think there's a degree to which they were concepts that hadn't been invented yet. So let's read this little bit from the book, An Ape by Any Other Name. It is clear that, throughout the colonial era, many white pioneers believed Yahoo was the most commonly used Aboriginal term for the hairy giants. That, however, may not really have been the case. In 1726, in his satirical novel, novel Gulliver's Travels, oh, I'll do a little promotion here, we do have an episode about Gulliver's Travels and the idea of monsters in the 1700s, so you should listen to that. Jonathan Swift called a fictional race of monkey men Yahoo's, Although Aboriginal use of the word could conceivably have been coincidental, Graham Joyner, another uh, Yowie researcher, who has researched the matter in depth, suggests it is more likely Aborigines picked up the term from early settlers. He may well be right, but in any case, by the mid-1800s, many Eastern Australian Aborigines were using the term, and many whites, believing the word to be of Aboriginal origin, were also using it to refer to the Yowie. You can see why this is so mixed up. Anyway, back to the book. There is some dispute about the term Yowie. Veteran researcher Rex Gilroy insists that it is an authentic Aboriginal term, once widely used in the Blue Mountains and beyond, meaning Great Hairy Man. But Graham Joyner disagrees. He points out that references to the word prior to about 1975, when Rex began to popularise it, are extremely difficult to find. We are inclined to think Rex and Graham are both partly right. To us, the evidence suggests Rex is right in claiming Yowie as an authentic Aboriginal term for the hairy men, but wrong in saying it was very widely used. The term was certainly applied to the ape men at least 10 years before Rex began to popularise it. In 1962 or 63, PJ Gresser wrote that the Aborigines of southeastern Australia, particularly the mountain tribes, feared the Yahoo or Yowie an animal of large proportions, whose body was covered with masses of long hair and whose feet were reversed, the toes being where the heel should be. Interesting, if uh, rather convoluted stuff there. Now, with regards to the what, what the guys call the Aboriginal period, which is ideas about a Yowie-type creature that seemed to predate the colonial period, the, the arrival of Europeans, this, there are some difficulties here. I mean, firstly, we're talking about a culture that was massively degraded and kind of had to be rebuilt with with a lot of elements missing. And it's difficult to say that 
ideas that people have now are the same as what they would have been back then. But um, not to be dismissive uh, about what people say it is true, because there does seem to be a lot of evidence that groups of Aboriginal people believe in something that they now call the Yowie, whether they reversely took that name from settlers back in the day or not. Uh, the jury seems to be out. Now, worth mentioning here that stories about sort of forest-dwelling, hairy wild men seem to be pretty ubiquitous around the world. And that that is really interesting, and I don't have an answer for it. So people who, you know, are proponents of cryptozoology, they really like this idea because it seems to imply that there is some real creatures out there that would have been the origin for these stories. So... It, it is true that, you know, native peoples in North America have sort of Sasquatch-like stories. The, the Sasquatch, as we recognize it today, is a bit of a hybrid creature between stuff that I think the Native Americans used to believe and then stuff that the 20th century researchers wanted it to be. I think there's some similarity here with the Yowie. Similar, you know, there's there's cases from all over the world. Um, you know, you've got Almasti in, in Russia and Central Asia. You've got the Orang Pendek in Southeast Asia. And even in Europe, you've got ideas of this thing called the Woodwoes, who is a figure who shows up in sort of medieval and early modern woodcuts as a, a wild, hairy man, a little bit like the Green Man, perhaps. I don't, I can't, as a non-medievalist, I don't want to wade into the sticky waters of what this represents and whether it's something people ever thought was a literal reality or whether it was more of a allegorical or even a religious thing i don't know but it does make me wonder is there something fundamental about this idea this icon is, is it something that expresses some deeply held need that we have maybe explaining something about the fact that we ourselves are you know part of nature but we've also separated ourselves from nature and that maybe subconsciously you know our relationship to nature troubles us or you know, requires addressing in some way, and that for that reason, the idea of a of a of a thing that seems to be halfway between us as civilized people and the wild, that that's really attractive, and that it just pops up again and again in myth and legend and storytelling. I don't know, but it, it is tremendously interesting, and um, I might have to do some more research and and do an episode um, on the woodwows at some point in the future, if not for no other reason than just to remind us that. You know, these wild hairy man stories happen in Europe as well because they're so often, you know, framed as something that, you know, quote unquote, you know, native peoples only believe in. But we, we have a version of it perhaps um, in our own history as well. And, and, and just because it shows up everywhere, does that mean that it's real? Well, like various cultures have stories about almost all cultures have stories about you know demons or witches or magic of some kind and you know it, ha it expresses itself in different ways but that those things do seem to be ubiquitous and that doesn't necessarily mean that you know demons are real or dragons are real yet they show up in multiple cultures you know and, and they have differences but they have similarities moving on to the colonial era like the mostly the 1800s which as i said has to be very informed by this kind of like hoax newspaper culture. Uh, I'm going to read a little story here. It's uh, because because it features somebody who has shown up in another episode, albeit obliquely. So they write in the history of Australian exploration from 1788 to 1888. Ernest Favenk tells how in 1851 two squatters named Oakton and Hulks 
while searching for good grazing land to the west of Lake Torrens, South Australia, were told by Aborigines that ape-like creatures were sometimes encountered in the area. He also tells how Aborigines warned Messrs Dempster, Clarkston and Harper about similar animals in southwest Western Australia in 1861. Quote, The Aborigines gave an account of the Jimbra or Jingra, a strange animal, male and female, which they described as resembling a monkey, very fierce, and would attack men when it caught one singly. Thinking there might be a confusion of names, the explorers asked if the Jimbra or Jingra was the same as the Ginka, the native name for devil. This, however, was not so, as the natives asserted that the devil or Ginka was never seen, but the Jimbra was both seen and felt. This is something which is insisted upon periodically in the book uh, when dealing with material from different eras and ages, and it is worth mentioning that you know, when slightly sceptical folks like myself come in and say, oh, you're just taking, you know, these old legends and reframing them in a way that, that suits your way of thinking. And, and they often like to make this distinction that, you know, the original tellers of the tale make themselves make a distinction between, you know, stuff that is sort of philosophical or religious or spiritual, and then the here and now pelt and cause creatures and and they make that difference and they say no we actually we actually see these creatures so that's worth mentioning but the real reason i, I mentioned the story is because of uh, this guy ernest favenk because in our picnic at hanging rock episode i did some readings from a book called australian ghost stories by james doig and there's a story in that collection called a haunt of the jinkeras so in, in this story i've just read the the local name for the yowie was uh, jimbra or jingra and that reminded me of Jinkera. So I went back and looked at that story and it was written by Ernest Favenk. And that, that, this story here in this book that he wrote, he was, a, he was a, a, a journalist of some sort. So he wrote the history of Australian exploration and he's telling this real story about Yowie legends, but he then turned the story into like a, a short, weird tale or horror fiction from about the same period as, as best I can figure out. And in that story, the Jinkeras are these sort of ape-like creatures that have tails and live underground. They're Yowie-esque, but uh, the tails make them a little bit different. Yowies like Bigfoot and, and Yetis are generally described as not having tails. So Ernest Ravenk, interesting to see uh, an old friend showing up here and making the leap from... The, the fictitious world to the perhaps real world and just showing how you know when you're reading all this old-fashioned these weird stories from the 19th century you know it's cool to find out that one of them is taken from something that was presumed to have been a, a real life story moving forward into the the early modern period like that's the quiet period uh, you know at the beginning of the 20th century going up until the 1970s when the yowies become popular again one thing i want to mention is like, like I said, there was no cultural fixture for these things. There's no reason why they would have kind of popped up or stuck around. And there was no, I, th I think, crucially, there was no researcher interested in them at this time. Like, to me, it's important that the story picks up again when someone like Rex Gilroy, who's an enthusiast, decides to take up the charge. And there just happened not to have been anyone who was taking an interest at this time. So I think... I think it was Jeb Card who said that, you know, a window area, you know, like something from the Mothman prophecies could be defined as, you know, X many miles around a researcher. So like, you know, if no one is interested in this stuff and is not recording it, then 
it tends not to happen. But when a researcher shows up and is looking for stories, the stories tend to come. So make of that what you will, but for whatever reason, sociological or otherwise, this was a relatively quiet period. And again, like I said, what stories we do have from this period, unfortunately for me, uh, tend to have been not related until after 1975. So let's get to that that big important date. That's when Rex Gilroy starts his whole thing. The attitude of the two writers towards Gilroy is interesting because, well, you can watch a video of him later on in his life when he's kind of old, and he seems he seems a likable but eccentric guy, and he's still on the trail of the Yowies, and you know up until the end of his life, and he still is out doing stuff and. Far be it for me to be sniffy about him because he's I'm sitting in an armchair in a cabin and he's the one out looking for things. But you go and watch that video yourself and, you know, let me know whether or not you think he's the kind of guy whose information you should be taking seriously. Healy and Cropper don't really get on with him and they make that clear. But they're very diplomatic about it. Again, I really like these guys for some reason. They basically say, look... He's an eccentric guy. He's written a lot of weird shit. We don't really trust his research. He claims a lot of weird stuff and isn't able to back it up. He writes books about finding, you know, pyramids from lost civilizations in Australia. So, you know, if he's into all that crazy stuff, why should we take what he says about the Yowie seriously? And at this, uh, they, they literally say, if we could write the history of the Yowie without including this guy, we would. And it's clear that they had some dealings with him and it went sour at some point. But they try to be as diplomatic as possible and they say, look, this subject would never have taken off if this guy hadn't been out doing the hard work and talking to newspapers and popularizing it. And maybe he wasn't a very good researcher, but, you know, whether through sheer hard luck or or hard work, he came up with some stuff that they agree with and think is probably true. I'll put a link to this video in the show notes. Gilroy, un- unfortunately, as you can tell from the video, is is very much on the trail of, you know, big science is, you know, hiding information and doesn't want the truth to get out and it's all a big conspiracy and scientists are evil and I'm a genius but nobody will listen to me, which it turns me off straight away. But having said that, he seems like uh, a likable but cantankerous old guy and uh, that, that short video... Of, of his life and is worth looking at. You can see his house and he, he, all the stuff he's collected over the years, all his paintings of Yowie stuff and all of his uh, footprint casts that he's got. So that takes us to the modern period section of the book, which is probably, the, it was definitely the biggest one. It's vast. And I suppose that's because, you know, this is the period that the writers themselves were active during and were doing their research. This was the period when they could actually travel to meet witnesses and talk to them and hang out with them. And I've got to say, it's impressive if for no other reason than its sheer length and amount. And the amount of time they spent with these people was was vast and impressive. And again, I'm, I'm an armchair critic here, so I can't say too much. They go and spend loads of time with people who've had sightings. They spend loads of time in places where sightings are happening and they give an incredible in-depth account of all this stuff. And again, they come off like really nice dudes and they constantly, they seem to make genuine friendships with all these people. And some of them, they, they, you know, they're having these experiences for year after year, which 
we'll get to. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're involved with this stuff over long periods of time and they're collecting all this information and they seem to have really good relationships with all these people. And it all seems like a lovely community. And I, too, would love to live, you know, um, in, a, in a remote house on the, on the bush at a national park up in the mountains outside Sydney That's how, and, and have, you know, relationships with these weird creatures coming in and, you know, sticking their head in my window of an evening. Sounds amazing. But... What we what we're talk what we're dealing with here really is like an earlier case of what we'd now call habituation cases. The lads don't use that word, but that's that's how I recognize it. And habituation cases when someone not is not just claiming that, you know, I was out in the bush this one time and I saw a Bigfoot. A habituation case is when someone says, Oh, I'm my house is out in their territory and I see them all the time and there's evidence of them happening nonstop. And yet somehow I never get a good photograph of them or anything else that might convince people. All of the evidence is kind of secondary. It's like, well, you know, look at that broken tree. No, you know, nothing else in the woods is tall enough to have done that. Or, you know, look at this pile of sticks on the ground. You know, it looks like it was arranged in a specific way to send a message or create a nest or something like that. So, you know, there are lengthy cases of these families that have had, you know decades of experience with the creatures but they never seem to get any good evidence there's some great stories about uh, videotapes that don't work properly and uh, audio tapes that you know have something that sounds tantalizing but the authors can't share it with you for some reason and there are some great uh, cases where boy scouts go on camp and you know have yaoi encounters and this stuff is really good fun but i mean as as the authors themselves admit ultimately what it comes down to is witness statements and and that's kind of it and there's something really like i said it's kind of repetitive and yet when you get into the right frame of mind there's something really enjoyable about these witness statements and you know you you spend enough time with the witnesses to feel like yeah hell, hell yeah they are nice people and the the authors spend a lot of time saying how trustworthy and ordinary and honest these people are and you really want you really want to be there with them but but what they don't let slip at this point, not yet anyway, is that a lot of these like decent, ordinary people also see these creatures as being mystical or supernatural. And they, they kind of leave that stuff out of these stories until a final chapter. They do go there and, and they're upfront about it, but they set their stall out first as, as if maybe this is a real flesh and blood animal. Let's investigate that idea first because it seems like the most obvious take and... And anything that seems like it's something more mystical, well, we'll shove that in the back chapter. And and then late in the book, they talk about a creature they call Littlefoot, or the Jujundi, which is like a small, like one or two foot high hairy creature, which at first, you know, they admit, look, we didn't really want to talk about this because it's inconvenient. You know, we're trying to make this case for a real animal based on, you know, encounters and evidence and footprints and audio tape you know evidence and now you're telling us that there's also a tiny little you know goblin like hairy man as well and they're really honest about this they say we don't like this at all this is really inconvenient but we've heard so many stories about it that we have to we have to include it and 
you know they even they even admit that some of these stories especially with within the aboriginal folklore make these creatures out to be well folkloric like fairy tales they they talk to people they kidnap people they do like little people things you know that remind me of stories of fairies in europe and you can tell the authors are a bit uncomfortable with this but also you know settler white people are reporting seeing these little yaois as well so we have to talk about that and you know i do admire their honesty in saying that they don't like this but they can't they can't get around it and and finally we get to a a kind of an overview of the evidence altogether and they look at the the timings and the number of sightings and the locations they talk about the different kinds of evidence they've collected they talk interestingly about how footprints are relatively rare and again me looking at this from a sociological point of view largely it does feel like footprints and footprint casts do not play a central role in the Yowie myth the way they do in American Bigfoot culture. I mean, the core Bigfoot case from the 1950s was a footprint case and the, the photographs that, you know, traveled around the world and sparked off an obsession were photographs of a guy holding Bigfoot casts from the, the original Bluff Creek prints. And there's no comparable central case in, in Yowie culture. And for that reason, the, the guys, the authors have to admit that the, the footprints that they do have are one of the most troubling elements of the story because you've got all these, you know, really solid witness encounters and, you know, honest people who seem to be telling the truth about what they've seen. And then when there are footprints, they're wildly different. They have two toes, three toes, four, five, um, anything at all. You know, there's no consistency. Sometimes they have a you know, a, a, a single big toe that's sticking out the side like some kind of apes have. And then most of the time they're more up at the top together, like like more influenced by American Bigfoot prints. But basically there's there's no consistency at all. And if this is a real creature, then it's really, really difficult to get around that. Never mind the stories about the backwards feet that we mentioned, which interestingly show up in a lot of folkloric hominid stories. Uh, the the people of the Himalayas originally said the same thing about the yetis and the the original mountain you know the mountain climbers and the the folklorists and the cryptozoologists who originally took those stories and and wanted to fashion it to sound like a real creature well they didn't like that stuff at all they left it out they said oh we believe you when you're saying that there's a creature up on the mountain but that stuff about the backwards footprints is off is off that's obviously like folklore nonsense I will say that. For example, with American Bigfoot, don't know why I keep saying American, <laughs> for Bigfoot, um, you know, there are mystical elements as well in the native stories, but then they tell stories about all sorts of real animals and give them mystical powers. You know, there's stories about birds and deer and bear and they talk to each other and, you know, they have meetings and competitions and, you know, Bigfoot shows up in those stories too. So just because the Bigfoot from the lore and the Yeti from the lore has some kind of magical qualities doesn't necessarily mean it's not a real creature because the real creatures in these stories often have mystical qualities as well. So they're really, really honest with their overview of the evidence. They basically, at the end of pages and pages of analysis, they say, look, what have we got? We have loads of really, really interesting first-person stories from reliable people, we have pretty much zero hard evidence. They also dip into something 
that's important to me. This interpretation is one that my own mind would naturally race towards. And to their credit, they take the time to address it. They say, in any case, the suggestion is that prior to the colonial era, the Yowie or Yahoo was nothing more than a rather amorphous boogeyman, just one of a host of evil spirits that kept Aborigines close to their fires at night. When British settlers heard about it, they supposedly ignored anything that smacked of the supernatural and focused instead on its hairy man-like aspects. Ancient tales of the of the Woodwosa, that's the Woodwos from Europe, supposedly came to their minds and British and Aboriginal folklore combined to create a hybrid legend that soon took a level, a life of its own. The fact that Jonathan Swift had, in Gulliver's Travels, written about a fictional race of ape men called, coincidentally, Yahoos, living on an Australian island, probably affected the way settlers interpreted the Aboriginal stories. The discovery of large man-like apes, orangutans, in nearby Sumatra must also have influenced their thinking. Aboriginal society, meanwhile, was being shaken to its core. By the mid-1800s, many southeastern tribes had been heavily influenced by the language, culture and folklore of the British interlopers. The hairy man beliefs of late colonial Aborigines, therefore, could have been as much a product of European superstition as they were of genuine Aboriginal traditions. Nourished by rumours and hoaxes, through the late 1800s and early 1900s, the new European or Aboriginal legend was supposedly given a strong shot in the arm in the modern era by media coverage of the American Bigfoot mystery. That's a, a fair analysis of, you know, what might be my my take on this. And they say, hey, look, that's something worth worth considering. They They kind of go on to say that this is less likely because there was very little evidence that Bigfoot stories were being reported back in the 1900s and, or 1800s in Australia, which is probably true. But um, for myself, I think that influence came, came later um, after the 1950s. Regardless, though they're convinced that something is going on here, they can't get around the fact that there is very, very little evidence besides witness encounters. And they can't, for this reason, they can't quite bring themselves to, you know, recommend the, the flesh and blood animal theory much as they would like to. And like I said, they, they don't get into the psychosocial theory here, which is a, a problem for me. I'm, I'm going to read a brief extract, just a tiny little bit from the article American Monster, which I've referred to before. This is by William Giraldi. He writes... You don't have to see a hairy monster to be able to remember seeing one, writes anthropologist David Daigling. This is not my opinion. It is a fact of human psychology. When people find themselves in an environment where they feel they ought to see Bigfoot, the monster is prone to make an appearance. So what does that mean? To me, it means, look, I love these stories about, about the encounters. And I think there's a reason why podcasts that just tell those stories, you know, without looking into it much further than that or doing any analysis sociologically and what's going on. People love that stuff. It's way more popular than what I do. And, uh, you know, it's, it's great stuff. It, it fires the imagination. And especially when you, when you get a lot of detail about who the witnesses are and, you know, why they're honest and believable and good people and there's no reason why they would make this stuff up. And especially if they've only had that one strange encounter in their life and it, you know, doesn't mean anything to them. So there's no reason for them to believe it you know, like like as if it was some kind of religious thing or anything of the sort. But yeah, like he says, you don't have to have seen a real monster to believe that you've seen a real monster. And 
everything I've read about human imagination and human memory particularly kind of cleaves to this. So memory is not some kind of magic recording device. And as is often said, every time you remember an experience, you're you're rewriting it in your brain and it alters slightly. And uh, this this happens very, very quickly after the main event actually happened. Our recollections of, of things that happened to us in our own lives and as such witness testimony as a whole is far more tied to societal expectations and conditioning than I think any of us are really comfortable admitting. If the idea, the concept, the meme of a hairy man like Yowie living out in the Australian bush, if that exists anywhere in your culture, then and then you do see something strange or anomalous when you're out in the bush, well, that idea is going to shape how you interpret what it is that you have seen. And that's why it's incredibly important to me to differentiate between you know, sightings that were genuinely happening before 1975 and those that happened afterwards. Unfortunately, that's the big thing that the, the writers don't take into account in this book for all of their really, really good work. And so having ruled out pretty much like a, a, an actual physical ape and, and not really considering strongly anyway the sociological explanation, they inevitably move on to what uh, Jeb Card calls the puffed, the paranormal unified field theory. And they semi-reluctantly go in this direction. It's mentioned that uh, at least one of the writers is kind of more okay with this than the other. I can't remember off the top of my head which is which. So Jeb Card's idea is that, you know, these different ways of studying the paranormal, like, like cryptozoology, ufology, psychical research, he reckons that really all this stuff is the same thing. It's just people who are interested in stuff that's weird or stuff that's forbidden or stuff that's not, not mainstream normal science. And he thinks that these different terms came about more because they were invented at a time in the 19th and 20th centuries when, you know, we placed a lot of stock in science and a scientific worldview. So we, we gave it this language of science. We say ology, the end of things, but that really it's it's a type of religion. It's It's a type of new ageism. It's a type of theosophy and that these boundaries of separating it into different studies are artificial and that you know when when we feel like nobody's looking we, we tear them down and we allow this to happen and and so the yowie book goes into a final chapter where they say well you know if people really are seeing something but it can't be a physical animal it must be some sort of paranormal being and then we get into ideas about you know it, well doesn't it instill fear in people and it gives people this irrational panic and uh, that leads on to a discussion involving like the great grey man of Ben McDewey, which is a similar a similar creature if you want to interpret it that way. And we did an episode about that as well, the great grey man, which you should listen to. They end up talking about connections between Yowies and alien big cats and poltergeist cases and stuff like this. And you as a listener, you might be interested in that and you might be on board for like a supernatural Bigfoot thing. And that's cool. It's a little bit beyond the confines of this episode. Uh, so my, my interest here is like we've watched these, you know, open minded, uh, you know, hardworking data collection guys, you know, approach this thing, presuming it to be a physical creature, uh, collecting all the information they can, probably writing more detail about it than anybody else ever has and being forced into this conclusion that, well, if people are seeing something, it can't be a physical thing. So it must be one of these other, you know after things to be to be a bit nasty about it and i think that has a lot to say about the state of the field in general across all of those different categories that i just named 
I think they would have liked this to have been a physical flesh and blood thing, as I would myself, uh, and were kind of forcibly backed into uh, another ghetto. Here's how they conclude. Having examined apparent Yowie tracks, interviewed more than 100, 120 mostly very credible eyewitnesses, and compared their stories to those of Aborigines and white pioneers, we find it almost impossible to believe the creatures don't have some kind of objective reality. At the same time, we acknowledge that hoaxes, folklore gone feral, shoddy reporting, wishful thinking and superstition have also had a role in shaping the phenomena. The inability, so far, of anyone to clearly photograph, capture or kill the creatures, and the many possible paranormal aspects of the mystery, also give us pause. After nearly 30 years of research, all we can say is this. The creatures seem to be very real indeed. Most of the time. And perhaps they are real, but perhaps not necessarily real in the full Western sense of the word. And that's it for this episode, folks. Hope you enjoyed it. Before I go, I might make a quick recommendation because we're on the subject of Australian cryptids. And at the beginning, about a million years ago, when I was talking about the, the Tassie tiger, the thylacine, I think that's how it's pronounced. I'll do a quick recommendation. If anyone has not seen a film called The Hunter, which is about Willem Dafoe playing a some sort of a, an ace animal catcher sent to look for the last Tasmanian tiger. But it, it's also about a whole lot more than that. And guess what? Sam Neill is in it. And come on, you love Sam Neill. We all do. There are very few good films about cryptids, which makes me sad. And this one is, it's slow, but it's pretty interesting. And it's got some gorgeous cinematography, all, all actually filmed in situ in Tasmania. And you don't see a lot of films made there either. So that's The Hunter worth tracking down, ho ho, if you can. So until then, um, by all means, please do get in touch. Let me know what you think. I love monsters. I would love them to be real. Uh, if, so if I've missed any good uh, references or if you have any good information that um, would change my mind on this stuff, by all means, send it in on Twitter at Strange Ireland, on Instagram, Wide Atlantic Weird Podcast. And until next time, as always, stay safe and thanks for listening. We are certain that Satanism exists. It's the practice of evil. And following closely behind this car was this... Unidentified flying object. You will prove the existence of the Bigfoot or Sasquatch by bringing in a body.